Bible, feel, feel free to take one of those pew Bibles from the, the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are. So we begin, I want you to just to imagine a scene with me. A scene that probably we, none of us have ever really experienced. But picture with me a, a group of people that is incredibly diverse. Imagine a group of people that is made up of representatives from all over the world. Everybody's there in their traditional dress, speaking their, their own language. We have thousands of people who are together and, and are just united together by one thing. Imagine a tapestry of diversity, of ethnicities and races and nationalities and language all gathered together in one place. Imagine every nation being represented. Imagine every ethnicity being there, every culture on display. Now, normally, if we imagine a scene like that, we would say, well, that's going to last for about three minutes before all of the old cultural rivalries break out, and this person realizes this group over here actually had a war with them last year, and historically, we hate that people group, and this one has been oppressed by that one. But this group of people is different. This group of people is not marked by the old cultural rivalries or the historical oppressions and wrongs. This group of people that I'm picturing here is united in perfect joy and love and harmony with each other. It's united together by a common focus and complete and total forgiveness, yes, in spite of the wrongs that have been done. What am I describing? I'm describing what the Bible presents as this is what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be. The church of Jesus Christ, both now in local assemblies and one day gathered around the throne in heaven. Revelation gives us a vision of what heaven is going to be like, and it is marked by every nation and tribe and tongue and ethnicity and race being united together in the worship of King Jesus. And by the way, John uses those terms suggesting to, to us that they retain their ethnicity even in the, in the eternal state, united together in the worship of King Jesus. This tapestry of humanity, this rich array of all the diversity that God created, uniting together and worshiping him. The implication I get reading that is God is so majestic and glorious, he's not just worshiped in, by one cultural expression. He's worshiped by them all. That's the scene that we get at the end of the Bible. God's blood-bought people worshiping him around the throne. Heaven is going to be marked by racial diversity and globalist inclusion. That's the vision we get at the end of history. What a beautiful picture it is. What a, what a contrast to what we see on this earth. What a contrast we see to the, to the futile attempts by human beings to try to make that happen here and now. Our world today is marked by ethnic enmities by racial division, by national rivalries. Now, we might say, well, that's sad but inevitable. That's just sort of the way it is that you're going to have racism and ethnic hatreds and wars and all of these oppressions. I guess it's just normal. We better just get around to dealing with it and accepting it. And tragically, those divisions that we see in our world, that we have seen through history, have all too often made their way into the church of Jesus Christ. Those old racial enmities, those old ethnic hostilities. It's often said, and I think quite truthfully, that Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. 
Everybody goes to their own church and gathers with people who look just like them. And it's not that there's any hatred towards other people, but there's not really any desire or effort to be with people who are, who are different. And while much has changed over the last 60, 70 years, I think we have to acknowledge that the church's record on racism and ethnic inclusion has not been that great. In fact, it has been quite wicked at various points. Now, what does this have to do with Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2, the second half of Ephesians 2, gives us a vision of the church that is marked by racial unity. That is marked by unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not in a sort of United Nations kumbaya, let's all ignore our differences kind of way. But in real unity in the gospel between people groups who would naturally be hostile to each other. Follow along as we read Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 11. And I want you to hear this message of racial unity in the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. Wherefore remember, Ephesians 2 verse 11... That ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ." Verse 14, for he is our peace, who hath made both, okay, both Jew and Gentile, these warring ethnic groups, he's made them both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of these two groups, one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to them which are afar off and to them which are nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I think we come at this point to the theological heart of the book of Ephesians. Paul laying out his desire for the church to enjoy genuine unity in the gospel. Real unity between Jew and between Gentile, these two warring ethnic groups that existed in his day. This is a text that calls us to real unity. Not just unity with people who are like us. There's nothing special about that. right? You can have people who do not know Jesus, who have unity because they have have a homogenous group where everybody's the same. Nothing special about that. But when we get unity between what Paul describes, the Jews and the Gentiles, in our modern context, between black and white, between those who are majority culture and those who are minority culture, that is something that is special. That is something that is wrought by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, crashes into our world of ethnic enmities and racial divisions and national rivalries and declares that God in Christ has overcome them. 
It's a stunning declaration. It's not just saying, hey, guys, try for this. But it's saying, it has already been accomplished by the cross of Jesus Christ. Now embrace it. This text calls you and me to embrace racial unity in the church. Because racial unity is a gospel reality. It is a blood-bought result of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The cross-work of Jesus results in a cross-cultural people of God, where there's no room for segregation or second-class status or for people going into different churches based on the amount of melanin they have in their skin. So my, my call to our church today is that we as Cloverleaf Baptist Church would embrace and would pursue racial unity in the gospel. And not because, oh, that seems like a really cool, woke thing to do. But because the gospel compels us to do that. Anything less is a deficient understanding of the gospel. Racism is not only an affront to the image of God and man. Racism is, is, is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be saved, yes, and still be a racist. But you cannot truly understand the gospel and its work to bring together racial unity and still be a racist. Racism is a gospel issue. It cuts against the image of God and man. It cuts against the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It cuts against the universal depravity that we have as sinners before God. The Bible has so much to say on this topic. So let's just dive in. I want to walk through three reasons this text presents to us why we must pursue racial unity in the gospel. That in the gospel is really important. We're not just talking about, like I said, well, let's all just kind of get together. But this is in the truth and through the work of Jesus Christ. So number one, embrace racial unity because of what you used to be, because of your past exclusion and now your present inclusion in the people of God. Okay, a couple of things we need to explain here. We're, we're, we're dealing with the first century where there are major divisions in the ancient world. We think about the divisions we have in our world today between black and white. The divisions that existed in the ancient world between Jew and Gentile made today's divisions seem like child's play. The divisions that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, the hatred that existed between these ethnic groups was absolutely stunning and absolutely staggering. And so Paul says in verse 11, he says, remember. So he's writing primarily to, to Christians who were Greeks, who were Gentiles, who've come to faith in Jesus. And he's saying, I want you to remember what you used to be. I want you to remember the fact that you used to be outside of the people of God, that you used to be dead in your sins. You used to have no claim on any status before God. This is a good reminder. Look at verse 11. He says, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, and just sort of the external way you were, you were, you were Gentiles, you were outsiders, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. Okay, so one of the marks of the Jewish people in the ancient world is they practiced circumcision. Nobody else did. And they took that as a badge of we're better than everyone else. You're like, hey, kind of a weird way to differentiate yourself. Where'd they get that idea from? It was a sign that God had given them in the Old Testament. Over time, rather than it being a sign of, hey, God's promises for the future, it became their way of saying we're better than everyone else. What is wrapped up in verse 11 is almost a racial epithet. Oh, you all are the unclean Gentile dogs. That's how they viewed each other. It underscores the utter hatred and disdain Jews and Gentiles had for each other. The Jews at that time regarded Gentiles as nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. Like That's pretty harsh. 
Y'all are just fuel that God's going to light up one day. That's, that's how they viewed them. The Gentiles, from their part, regarded the Jews as homicidal enemies of the human race. Like, you guys would get, get rid of You think about the history of anti-Semitism. It was there in the ancient world. The Roman writer Livy wrote, The Greeks wage a remorseless war against people of other races against barbarians. So the Greeks viewed everyone in the world, they're barbarians, they're uncultured. I mean, just a world that is absolutely filled with hatred. And so Paul says, I want you to remember what you used to be. Here's the thing. It's easy for us to begin to think that we are better than other people because of our heritage, because of our skin color, because of our background, because of where we are on the intersectional pyramid. To take claim and to think we're superior because of fill in the blank. Paul in verses 11 and 12 takes a sledgehammer to that. He says, no matter your ethnic background, you were without Christ. You had nothing to, to, make, to, to say you have any claim before God to say that you're better than anyone else. Look at how he breaks this down. He says in verse 12, remember that at that time you were number one without Christ. Like you didn't have Jesus. You, you weren't Jewish, so you didn't even have the promise and the hope of a Messiah coming. You don't have Christ, so you miss out on everything we've talked about in Ephesians is based on being in Christ, in a relationship with Jesus. You didn't have a relationship with Jesus before that time. So secondly, in verse 12, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. God chose Israel as, as his nation in the Old Testament. And just because you were a Jew did not automatically mean that you were saved, but it did mean that you were a citizen of this nation that had a unique standing with God. You would have had the Torah. You would have had the, what, what existed of the Bible at that time. You would have had the ability to learn and to know who God was. And he says, y'all who were Greeks living in Ephesus, you had access to none of that. You had no idea who God was. He goes on to say, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Those, by the way, are political terms. Strangers, you're like a, an immigrant living in a country, but you don't have any of the rights that a, that a citizen has. You're, you're a foreigner. That's the idea. And then here's the, here's the summation, the end of verse 12, having no hope without God in the world. You don't have a relationship with God there's no reason to be hopeful. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, there's not any hope that I have in the world. Hope is only found in a relationship with Christ. That's when life's ultimate questions get answered. Is when we see the better story that the, the Bible tells us of, this is where we've come from, we're made by God, and this is where we're going, we're made for his glory. Without God, you don't have that hope. You don't have any understanding of what happens after I die. You are without hope, without God, you are godless. Now, that's an interesting statement because one thing we know about the Gentiles, about the Greeks, they had their pantheon. You can go to, to Athens today and there's the pantheon where they had all of their gods and they would worship all these deities. What he means is you didn't have a relationship with the one true God. What a list of demerits that they had without Christ. And you think, well, what about the Jews? They had kind of the opposite. They knew about the Messiah. They had the covenants. They were in this you know, God's chosen people. What we saw last week is Paul had said, everybody was spiritually dead. You don't have any reason to claim that you're better than anyone else, both Jew and Gentile, equal before God in their lostness and in their hopelessness. But notice verse 13. He says, but now. I love that contrast. You used to be that. You know, it's a great spiritual discipline to reflect on what God has done in your life. What did you used to be before Christ came into your life? What did you used to be? 
What did you used to be before you heard and understood the gospel? But now, here's where we are now on the other side of coming to faith in Jesus. Verses 11 and 12 are like, here's your B.C. days. Now here's your A.D. days. Here's after you, you came to know Christ. But now... In Christ Jesus, notice how that contrasts. He said, without Christ, it was all of these horrible things, but now in Christ Jesus, you've entered into a relationship with Jesus by faith. That's the key that unlocks all of the spiritual benefits of Ephesians. You who are sometimes afar off, those of you who used to be distant, far away from God. Now, this is imagery that comes from the temple. You think about the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. There was the temple itself with the Holy of Holies and the holy place. Only the priests could go in. And then the next sort of ring out was the court of Israel, where if you were a Jewish male, you could kind of get a little bit closer. Then there's the court of the women. They could only go so far, but they couldn't go as far as the men. And then the furthest out is the court of the Gentiles. Like, let's say you're a Gentile believer in the Jewish God. You could go to Temple Mount, but you couldn't get close. You were afar off. You were distant, both spiritually and geographically. Because you are far off, you have been made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been brought near, not through the blood of a sacrifice, but through the cross work of Jesus. He's died in your place, and he's brought you nigh, not just into the court of Israel. He's brought you into God's very presence. That's the gospel, beloved. Any sinner who repents and believes in Jesus is brought nigh, no matter your ethnic background. So verse 13 announces this stunning reversal We have been brought near. We who were outside of God's covenant and God's people have been included. God has brought us into the new covenant, given us a new heart, a new relationship, a new birth, a new standing, a new start. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I know my life has been a bit of a, it's a bit of a mess. And I've tried all these things. I've tried going to AA. I've tried New Year's resolutions. I've tried, you know, transcendental meditation, all these different things to try to make my life better, and it's just not worked. Every new leaf that I have turned over has ended up wilting. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises you something infinitely better than just another program to try to improve yourself morally. The gospel says you can be born again. Have a brand new, fresh start through what Jesus did, did on the cross. Now, what does this have to do with Paul's main point? His main point here is to call the church at Ephesus and, by extension, you and me to embrace racial unity. Racial division sucks the oxygen of pride, right? That's what it breathes is pride of whether it is white supremacy or black power or our nation is better than your nation. The sense of pride based on something so trivial, uh, this man-made construction called race. By the way, race is a biological fiction, It's this man-made thing that people came up with so they could justify oppressing other people groups. So to take claim in something that's this biological fiction, it's like so wrong-headed and backwards, especially when we recognize the ground at the foot of the cross is equal and all of us were spiritually dead. You know what? Dead people don't have any way to say, well, I'm a better dead people than you, right? If you're all excluded and outside, like, there's no saying, well, I'm, like, less excluded. Like, excluded is excluded. Dead is dead. This, this teaching of the Bible of man's total depravity, of our sinfulness before God, our need for redemption, smashes racism if we understand it properly because we recognize then I have no grounds for boasting. 
No grounds for pride. No grounds for, if I keep them out, I feel better about myself. Oh, no, if I recognize we were all on the outside and God has brought me in, who am I to say, someone else, for some reason, I want them to also be on the outs? He says, remember what you were. Remember your past exclusion. Remember the fact that you didn't belong and God brought you in. But here's a second reason, and this is the the heart of this paragraph. Embrace racial unity because of Christ's atoning work. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. We often understand the cross as, you know, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We understand the cross reconciles me to God and takes away my sin and, you know, gives me a guarantee of eternal life. What this text is teaching is that in addition to that, the cross secures racial unity among believers. The cross not only makes me right with God, but makes me right with other people who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what verses 14 to 18 are driving at. Is it just me or is it kind of warm in here? uh, Tim, could you go ahead and get the air going for us? Um, You come in in the morning and you have to put the heat on and then everybody gets all of our hot bodies in here and it just starts kind of sizzling, and then we got to switch the air on. Um, I need like a remote control for it, you know, so if the preaching's getting real crazy, we can turn the air down a little bit, or if people are nodding off. Um, the second point here, we embrace racial unity because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. It begins in verse 14. Notice that first word, for, he is our peace. That word for is saying, here's the explanation for what I just said. Gentiles have been brought near. Now here's the ground, here's the basis, here's the foundation for that. Jesus is our peace. Now in the Greek, this is emphatic. He himself alone is our peace. What is the peace between God and man and between sinners and sinners? It's not like a man-made papering over of the problems. It is an actual turning away of the hostility and the enmity that existed. He is our peace. Now, you say, what does it mean for Jesus to be our peace? And what is peace? Like, we think, oh, peace, man. Like, no, the idea of peace here is not like, you know, peace signs and driving around in Volkswagen vans with flowers painted on them. That's not the idea of peace. Peace, biblically, is shalom. It is wholeness. It is restoration. It's not just the absence of shooting. It is the presence of complete and utter restoration. The restoration of a relationship between God and man and between sinners and sinners. This whole healed relationship. It says, Jesus is our peace. Now, notice how often the word peace comes up in this paragraph. And the, and the antonym, hostility, enmity. Verse 15 says that he has abolished the enmity, the hostility, thus making peace, the end of verse 15. And then he reconciles, that's a peace kind of word, verse 16, having slain the enmity, having slain the hostility. And in verse 17, he came and preached peace. So how does Jesus make peace between warring ethnic and racial groups in the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Very simply, he died on the cross. The end of verse 13 says we've been made nigh how? By the blood of Christ. Okay, so notice that word. Verse 14 says that, Actually, it's in verse 15 in in, in our English translations. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity. The in his flesh is his death on the cross is what obliterates racial enmity. And then verse 16 says this has happened through the cross. So we have by the blood, in his flesh, through the cross. These are the means. The cross is the means of crossing the divide between warring ethnic and racial groups. 
The blood is what runs right through this section. The cross is what crosses over the divide. So do not lose sight of that. We're not just doing some sociology here. This is the death of Jesus Christ in our place that reconciles us to God. So let me give you some statements about the death of Jesus. If you want to take notes under this second point, number one, he died to make us both one. Okay, we see that in verse 14. He is our peace who hath made both one. Now, who's the both? The Jews and the Gentiles, divided in in every way possible. It says he has made them both one. The death of Jesus makes them both one. Jesus died so that there would be racial harmony in the church. That's to say it's not just a nice thing to pursue that, oh, yes, if God makes our church more diverse, that's a good thing. It is to say that it is one of the blood-bought benefits of Calvary. He died so Jew and Gentile, black and white, would be one in the church. Okay, secondly, verse 14 goes on to say, he has broken down the middle wall of partition. So he died to break down the segregating wall of ethnic pride. Now, verse 15 has that word enmity. If you stare at this in, in, in Greek, you'll find out that that word hostility that's in verse 15, that's been trans, the translators put it there, actually goes with verse 14. He's died to break down the middle wall of partition. That is the hostility. Like this hostility the Jews and the Gentiles had for each other. I described it a minute ago. One of the greatest symbols of this hostility was a wall that existed on the Temple Mount. You got the court of the Gentiles, court of the Jews. And they had a fence that was there about four and a half feet high, and it had a sign on it. If any Gentile crosses this line, if you die, it's not our fault. Like that's that's kind of one of those like no trespassing and trespassers will be shot. And here's the shell casings to show that I really mean that kind of signs. That is a symbol of the hostility and the pride, the the ethnic pride that resulted in that hostility. And what, what Paul is saying here is when Jesus died on the cross, he not only rent open the veil, making the way open into the presence of God, he also destroyed that wall. It's like President Reagan going to the Brandenburg Gate and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Jesus went and he tore down the wall, not just between East and West Germany, but between warring ethnic groups so they would be one in the body of Christ. He's destroyed the segregating wall of ethnic pride that would divide races and ethnic groups from each other. The pride that says we're better than you so we don't want you as part of our group, he destroyed it. He destroyed the demeaning signs that read colored and white. I've seen pictures of churches from the time of Jim Crow where there would be different doors depending on your ethnicity. Certain groups have to sit in the balcony. Others can sit on the main floor. Uh, there's even in the minutes of our church, I was going through for our anniversary, one of the very first business meetings in the 60s, the question was put forward to the church, what do we do if a black person comes to church? And the answer was, the pastor will handle it. That's sad. The question is even being raised. And I understand that's the, what the, the culture was at that time, but what a wicked, a wicked idea that even within the church of Jesus Christ that we would not want to worship Jesus with people who are just a little bit different than we are. Uh, thankfully, so much of that has receded into the background, but that's not that long ago. Jesus died to destroy that. One of my favorite stories from the life of Billy Graham was in 1952. He was in Jackson, Mississippi, holding a crusade. 
the crusade organizer says, if you're going to come and preach, you have to preach to segregated audiences. And initially, he went along with that until the Spirit of God convicted him. And they had ropes in the, in the tent where the crusade was happening. And he finally walked in there, and he took down the ropes. He says, if I'm going to preach, there's going to be no ropes. That's consistent with what this text is saying. There's going to be no ropes. There's going to be no walls dividing ethnic groups within the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus died. How's he making this peace? He died to make us both one. He died to break down the segregating wall of ethnic pride. Third, how does he carry this out? Verse 15 gives us the means by which he did it. Having abolished in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances. I noted enmity actually goes with verse 14. Here's how he did it. He fulfilled the law. The law was the... God gave Israel the law. We know about the Ten Commandments and Moses and the tabernacle and the eating kosher and circumcision and certain ways they were to dress. God gave that to Israel for a reason. One of the reasons was to help mankind see his need for Jesus Christ. One of the reasons God sort of marked Israel out with a special diet was he said, you're going to be different than the nations around you. I want to preserve your distinctiveness and holiness. But human nature being what it is, what God intended to be a mark of holiness got turned into a club of pride to be like, we are better than other people, and we're going to use these dietary laws to beat people over the head. Right? It became a way to keep people out rather than to be a testimony to bring them in. So how does Jesus get rid of the hostility? It says in verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments and the ordinances. Some people want to say that's just part of the law. I take it, I mean, Jesus took the Mosaic law and the covenant of the Mosaic law, and he fulfilled it. He lived a perfect life doing all the things that nobody had ever actually done, like obeying God perfectly. He dies on the cross, satisfying the wrath and the justice of God. And that law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that God's like cool with anything, like, oh, cool, I said thou shalt not murder, good to murder now. No, we have the law of Christ and a new covenant, which, by the way, repeats nine of the ten of the Ten Commandments. But he nullified the law. He took away the thing that had divided the Jew from the Gentile and says, you are now going to be one in the body of Christ. The barriers that separated Jews and Gentiles are gone. Okay, fourth. So Jesus dies to make us both one. He dies to break down the segregating wall of ethnic pride. He dies to nullify the law. Number four, he dies to create a new humanity. Look at verse 15. The second part of the verse Four, here's the purpose, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Think of the idea here is to, say, to make a new humanity. He's taking believing Jews and believing Gentiles and saying, I'm making a brand new humanity. So we remember Adam, right? Adam sins in the garden and the whole human race is condemned. The whole human race just descends into chaos and depravity. In the gospel, God is beginning this work of making a new creation. What, what this text is saying is, that new creation has already started. One day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And God has already begun making a brand new humanity. And this new humanity, beloved, is not defined by being Jew or Gentile or black or white. It is defined by faith in Jesus Christ. The early church fathers would talk about how the church is a new race. That It's not just about the old divisions, but this new humanity that God has made in the church He's already started that. 
The church of Jesus Christ is God's new nation. It is composed of every nation, tribe, and tongue according to Revelation, and it is no longer marked by the old rivalries of barbarian or Scythian or Jew or Greek or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, Colossians 1 verse 11. Jesus died to create a new people of God that is intentionally, by his decree, diverse. Now, if that's what Jesus died to achieve, we ought to pursue it. Right? If he's died to call out a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we should send missionaries to every nation, tribe, and tongue. If he died so there would be unity in the church between different ethnicities, we ought to embrace and seek and see that as a good. He died to create a new humanity. And verse 16 gives us a fifth thing that Jesus accomplished that brings about peace. He died to reconcile a spiritually united body to God. So verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God. So now we're not just talking about horizontal between sinners, but he's saying he's going to make this one body of believers the world over that one day is going to be presented to God, reconciled to God, at peace with God. Paul keeps these two things together. He doesn't just treat, well, unity between Christians, that's the main thing. No, it is ultimately about a relationship with God. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all of us are born into this world at war with God. We're sinners. We are rebels against him. We don't want him to rule over us. We don't want to follow his law. We, we lie and we lust and we get angry with one another and we worship things other than God and we rightly deserve his judgment. We're hostile towards God. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled himself to us and us to him. To those who will lay down their arms and come to him in faith and repentance, the relationship is reconciled. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the peace that Jesus purchased on the cross is not just automatic. It's not just like, hey, peace and love everywhere for everyone. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you which are afar off and to them which are nigh. In other words, Jesus then comes and he declares there's peace and there's a relationship that can exist between God and sinners. And he comes to those who are far, okay, the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews. Notice this, it is the same message. There's not a different way for Jewish people to get saved than there is for Gentiles. It's the same way everyone passes through the same narrow door. Everyone comes in through faith in Jesus Christ. That reality that there is only one way to be saved... It's impossible to hold that together consistently with any idea of racism, right? If we say, like, everybody is equally lost and everyone gets saved the exact same way, who are we to say that we're better than anyone else? So we came and preached this same message to those who are near, who are far, with the result being this. For through him, verse 18, we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father, you notice how often one has been used? He's taken both and he's made them one. Taken, taken two groups, made them into one body, and there's access by one spirit. We also have the Trinity here. Our relationship with God is access to the Father in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, through Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us right into the presence of God to worship before him. In the Old Testament, only one guy could go to God's presence. The high priest, one time a year. Now, Paul is saying, any Christian, even if you're not a priest, you're not, you're not in the right family, you're all priests now, and you all have access all the time to God, and one day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a blessing. 
One of the greatest displays of the gospel's power is unity across ethnic and national lines when we come before God together. So today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table at the end of the message in a little while. What a beautiful display when we, so to speak, sit around the same table together with people we don't have a whole lot in common with except for the fact that we believe in Jesus. What a thought. What a visual picture of the unity of the body of Christ as we say we have partaken of Jesus together and we're doing this symbolically by eating this bread that symbolizes our participation in Christ. Now, the third and final reason why we should embrace racial unity, unity in the church through the gospel is because of God's glorious purpose. Verse 19, now therefore, so now therefore saying, in light of everything that I've said, here's the conclusions. Now therefore, here's the results, here's the implications. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. Okay, back in verse 12, he says you had been strangers and foreigners from the covenants. You're no longer outsiders. You no longer are sort of just on a green card. He says, but you are now fellow citizens. You now have a passport. You are now a citizen with all the rights of a citizen. He says, you are now fellow citizens, not with Israel. doesn't say like we all become Israel. No, 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 no. He says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints, something bigger than just being part of a nation, being part of the people of God. Here's God's glorious purpose. God's glorious purpose is to make us citizens in his kingdom. Our citizenship is not ultimately in the United States. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. We, our citizenship changed. When you became a Christian, it went from being citizen in the kingdom of Satan to now being a citizen in the kingdom of Christ. There's been an amazing transfer that has occurred. We're citizens of a new nation. We're fellow citizens with all the saints of history. There's a lot of discussion these days about being, Christian, being a Christian nation and does such a thing exist. I'll say, yes, a Christian nation does exist, and it is called the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is the Christian nation, and guess what? It knows no borders. It is global in its scope. It is international in its membership. He says, we are part of that. And by the way, it transcends even time itself. I'm a fellow citizen with Abraham. <laughs> I'm a fellow citizen in God's kingdom standing shoulder to shoulder with Moses. I'm a fellow citizen with those who will be saved in the future in God's kingdom. The language of this kingdom is not English or Spanish or Chinese or French. It's the language of worship. It's the language of Christians together bowing before God. It's the language of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The allegiance that we offer is not ultimately to a flag, but to Christ himself. But then he changes the image again. God's glorious purpose is not only to make us citizens in his kingdom. The end of verse 19 says, and the household of God. Now we went from the language of politics and kingdoms to the language of the family table, of the living room. Not only are we citizens in his kingdom, we are children in his family. What a different image, right? Like citizenship in the kingdom is like the big thing we're a part of. But what a warm picture to say you come home and you pull a chair up at the dinner table and you are part of God's family. He's the father ruling over his household and you're a part. God is our loving father. We're sons and daughters, which means we're brothers and sisters. One of the most awesome experiences you can ever have is to travel to another country and sit down with Christians in another country. 
Christians who, like, you don't speak their language, they don't speak your language. You don't understand their culture, they don't understand your culture. Your politics maybe probably are completely and totally different to where if you, like, started talking politics, you'd be like, that's not how we see this. You can't speak a word of their language, but then you realize I'm speaking to a brother or sister in Christ, and there's an immediate connection. Been in Papua New Guinea in, in a mud hut on top of a hill with a guy I didn't know anything he was saying through an interpreter. He was like, hey, could you please go back to America and tell them to come here and send more missionaries to my village? I'm a believer in Jesus, and I need a church. Let me tell you, I have a closer connection that guy whose name I don't even know, than I do with someone who lives in the same neighborhood and votes for the same candidates and looks just like me who doesn't know Jesus. That person is a truer brother or sister to me than someone who is even of the same blood. They're a truer brother or sister than even someone who is in the same family who doesn't know Christ. Like, that's incredibly subversive, and that sort of takes the eraser on all the ways we draw lines to split humanity into different nations and groups and categories, where really, at the end of the day, there's those who are citizens of the kingdom and those who are not, those who are part of God's family and those who are not. That's the division that matters. It is far better for your son or your daughter to marry a Christian of a different ethnicity than for them to marry someone of the same ethnicity who doesn't love Jesus. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, that opposing interracial marriage on the grounds of it being interracial is abomination to God. True, true marriage is based on people who love Jesus together, not about superficial things like ethnicity that we imposed upon that. God's glorious purpose is to make us citizens in his kingdom, to make us children in his family. But the chapter ends with a sort of culminating purpose that he has, is to make us building blocks in his temple. Look at verse 20. He then changes the image again. Paul did not take English class. You know, he tell you, like, don't mix metaphors. Paul's, like, mixing metaphors from, like, kingdom, now to family, and now he's, like, temple. Like, here's this other one. He says, we are being built, verse 20, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom all the building fitly framed together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ is the new covenant temple of God. Now, you think about the Old, the Old Testament. Moses builds a tabernacle. God reveals his presence there. Solomon builds this glorious temple in Jerusalem. God reveals his presence there. The New Testament is no longer about a building or a place. It's about a blood-bought people of God that God dwells in the midst of. When Moses finished the tabernacle, God's glory filled it, and there was this cloud, and there was fire. There was like a rushing wind. When Solomon finished his temple and the prayer of dedication is offered, God fills the temple, and there's cloud, there's fire, there's a mighty rushing wind. On the day of Pentecost, when God begins building his new temple, there's cloud, there's fire, there's a mighty rushing wind. We are the temple of God. It's not about a location or a place or a building, but it's about the people of God worldwide, God dwelling in their midst. Now notice a couple of observations about this temple. Notice who's building it. Verse 20, you are built upon. Okay, passive voice means this. We're not the ones building the church. God's the one who is building the church. He's the one who is adding to it. He's the one who is, is bringing sinners into a relationship with Christ. God is the builder. 
In Paul's day, God determined to say, we're going to add Gentiles to the structure. In our day, you know where the gospel is having its greatest influence? In Africa, in South America. Not really here. 50 years from now, the church of Jesus Christ is going to look very different from a cultural and from a, a, a national perspective. God is the one building his church, and he's calling sinners out from the world over, and we get to be part of what he's doing, and that's why we send missionaries. That's why we give to support missionaries. That's why we want to see people come come to faith in Jesus Christ. The foundation, this is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Not so much that they're like literally the foundation, but the things that the apostles taught, that's the foundation for the church. In other words, what did the apostles teach? Well, what we have in the Word of God. Scripture is the foundation of the church. Everything we do should be based upon the Word of God, not upon the winds of culture, not based on what the media says, not, what, not based on what you heard someone on TikTok say, what the Word of God says. This is the foundation for the church. This should be the foundation of your life. So Jesus, in verse 20, is the chief cornerstone. Now, today when people lay cornerstones, it's like the building's done, now we're going to have the ceremony to put a cornerstone, and it's going to have some stuff engraved on it. In Paul's day, when you built a structure, the cornerstone was the stone from which everything else was sort of measured. It'd be like the survey marker where you're like, we're going to run our string from this. This is where the laser is going to shine from. Every part of the building has its place in relationship to the cornerstone. In the same way, every Christian in the church, we have unity with each other when we have a right relationship with Jesus. Unity is not found by working on trying to have unity. Unity is found by finding our place in relationship to Christ within the temple. Now, who are we in this analogy? We're the bricks. We're the bricks in the wall. We're the blocks in the temple that God is using to build the structure, and God himself is the occupant. Verse 22, we are being built together for inhabitation of God. God himself dwells among his people. Not in this building physically. There's nothing special about this building. But God dwells in the midst of his people that he has redeemed, in whom his spirit dwells. We get to be the dwelling place of God, which means that we represent God in this world. The unity that we have with each other reflects on what we think about God. When we're marked by divisions and fights and and all the same things that mark the world, we we suggest that that's what our God is like. We are God's reputation in this world. Racial unity in the church is not some woke project of critical theory. In fact, I will say that what the Bible presents for racial unity is infinitely better than anything the world offers infinitely better. It tells a far better story. The world will say, well, the way to deal with, with racial division is to stoke racial division and make it worse. Like, that doesn't make any sense. The Bible says the way to deal with racial division is to recognize that God is making a new humanity in Christ where we come through the same doorway, through the blood of the cross. The church's Display of unity is a display of God's wisdom and supernatural power to a hopeless world. We have a better story than anything this world offers. We have a better hope than anything this world clings to. Now today we're coming to the Lord's table. And I think it's appropriate that we have a message on unity before we come to the Lord's table. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, we often think of 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself. We think in terms of, okay, is there any sin between me and God? And in a moment, we're going to have a time for us to examine our hearts. 
But you know what Paul's overarching concern is in 1 Corinthians 11? It's that the church was coming to the Lord's table riven by divisions. He's like, what we're saying when we come to the Lord's table is that we're one body in Christ. But think about how absurd it is for us to come to the table saying we're one body in Christ when we're really fragmented and divided. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when you come together, I I hear there's all of these divisions, like, you're not there to celebrate communion if you're marked by divisions. I don't know what you're doing, but it's certainly not the communion of Christ, because Christ died to make his church one. There's a direct link between what we're saying in Ephesians and what we're about to do in going to the Lord's table. Now, what is communion? Let me just explain this for a minute. Communion is not a mystical thing where, like, this sort of turns into the body and blood of Jesus, and if you eat it, you'll go to heaven. Like, it's not magic. According to 1 Corinthians 11, the communion is not magic, it is memorial. It is a remembrance of what Christ did. We talked in our passage today, remember what you used to be. But not only should we remember what we used to be, we should also remember what Jesus did to rescue us. He died on the cross for us. He took our place to redeem us. And that's what communion is all about, is about our remembering, here's what I used to be, and here's what Jesus has done to forgive and to make me one. It's an expression of our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ around the table. We've got a wooden table here. Some churches, or so-called churches, will have a stone altar as if they're sacrificing Jesus again and again and again. Communion is is not about sacrificing Jesus again and again. It's about the family gathering around the table to feast on the promises of Christ. Communion is a picture and a reminder of Christ's cross work that has made us one. It's an anticipation of the day where we started our message. It's an anticipation of the day when we're in glory with Christ and we sit down together with God's people of all ages to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what we are looking forward to. Would you bow with me as we conclude our our message. We're going to have a moment here to just examine our hearts. I just think it's appropriate for us to...